theyeshiva.net. And I was so excited for Y.Y. Jacobson, by the way. I'm like, I feel like, like, and it's so cool that you got him uh, for for this evening because um, when I was looking for answers and I knew I wouldn't find them in the therapy room, I just didn't know I would find them in my own heritage. But when I was looking for answers and knowing that it's going to come from, from spiritual Judaism, uh, uh, eventually, I, I listened a lot to Y.Y. Jacobson uh, when I was going for like morning walks, and I know his voice so well. Uh, um, and and I feel like I know him. Of course, I don't, because like you and I, like I watch him and I listen to him. So just the fact that he's he's here today is is so special because he's he's huge, right? He 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 really understands you know the, the Jewish soul and and how to reconnect reconnect to it and I'm 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 so happy that you know people now will have a chance in a few minutes to to meet with him because he he really affected my own learning. Um, it gives me a great pleasure to welcome tonight one of the world's premier Jewish scholars in Torah and Jewish mysticism, Rabbi Yosef Yitzhak Jacobson. Rabbi Jacobson is one of the most sought after speakers in the Jewish world, lecturing to audiences and serving as teacher and mentor to thousands across the globe. He is considered to be one of the most successful, passionate, and mesmerizing communicators of Judaism, culling his ideas from the entire spectrum of Jewish thought and making them relevant to contemporary audiences. Rabbi Jacobson founded and serves as Dean of the Yeshiva.net, teaching via the web one of the largest Torah classes in the world with thousands of students globally. Formerly, he served as editor-in-chief of the Yiddish-English newspaper, the Algemeiner Journal. The format of Rabbi Jacobson's talk tonight will be an address to us all, followed by a question and answer led by Rabbi Moshe Khan. Please send a direct message to Rabbi Khan through the Zoom chat with any questions you'd like addressed by Rabbi Jacobson tonight. Thank you and welcome, Rabbi Jacobson. Thank you for your very kind introductory remarks. Welcome to all of my dear friends, brothers and sisters, Many of you that I uh, recognize here on Zoom, and all of us are connected and brothers and sisters. And thank you for all those who brought us all together on this very special evening. I have to say it's evening for you. It's very early morning for me. But uh, Torah transcends time and space because it connects us to something of eternity. And therefore, despite the differences in space and time, we connect not only through the technology of Zoom, which we say, Gam Zoom Latoiva, but we also connect in an internal space that transcends matter, time, and space, (coughs) all in one. I really thank you for this opportunity And thank all of you, I know many, many hundreds and hundreds of Jews in Australia coming together at what is not an easy time. So I'm going to just address you for a few moments, 10 or 15 minutes, and then we're going to open the floor to questions. And I want to share with you a story. The story I want to share was told by a Jew who had the, I had the privilege of knowing, although in his elderly years. This was a Jew who grew up 
in the Soviet Union. He was a chassid, a religious observant Hasidic Jew. His name was Reb Menachem Mendel Futterfass, Mendel Futterfass. He lost his father before he was born, so he was named after his father. I still remember Rosh Hashanah and Shul, he would get an aliyah, and they would call him up, Ya Mohoid Harav Menachem Mendel, Beharav Menachem Mendel. He was named after his father. And I was a little kid, and I asked my father, why, why is he named after his father? And he explained to me the phenomenon that I didn't understand as a child, that his father died before he was born. He had a difficult life, but he was extremely committed, loyal. He was a wise man as well. He helped hundreds of Jewish families get out of the Soviet Union after the Second World War. <coughs> Stalin, the tyrant of Russia, of the Soviet Union, allowed people, immigrants, refugees, who escaped the front and escaped Hitler's Nazi army and SS into Russia to go back to their native countries after the war was over. So there was a few months of an opening where you could get out. You had to forge a passport that you're a Polish citizen. And Reb Mendel Futafaz did this for helping hundreds of families. <coughs> my mother's family got out of Russia. My father's family got out of Russia. Many, in fact, settled in Australia, became the nucleus of the extraordinary Jewish community down under. In any case, Reb Mendel sent out his wife. He sent out his son. May he be well. <coughs> At the end, he was supposed to go out. He was caught. He was caught, apprehended, and sent into the Gulag. He was sent into Siberia. I believe for more than a decade. Very few people survived the Gulag. I think around 10 million people Stalin murdered by sending to the Gulag with the horrific conditions, malnutrition, the cold, the frostbite, the disease, the hunger, the slave labor, killed most people. It was very difficult to survive. Reb Mendel survived. He came out of the Gulag in 1963. He left the Soviet Union. He got permission. He was reunited with his family. And I knew him in his later years, in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s, until his passing. He would often tell stories of his experiences in Siberia, because who did Stalin send to Siberia? It wasn't just barbaric criminals. Siberia was filled with intelligent people. You had priests, and you had professors, and you had journalists, and you had novelists, and you had essayists, and you had generals, and you had commanders, and you had actors, and you had business people, and you had thinkers, and you had rabbis. There were some very interesting people there, intelligent people. You know, anybody who had a brain in Russia and used it was either shot or sent to the gulag. If you expressed your opinions, you were done. So Reb Mendel would often tell over stories of his encounters and experiences in Siberia. He was there for so many years. And they were fascinating stories, and he would always provide a lesson. Here is one of his classics, which whenever I think of it, I smile because of it. It tells you so much about the nature of people and the creativity and ingenuity of people, but also Reb Mendel's lesson. 
And I thought it's very apropos to share this today. Remendel says one night he was in the barrack. There was already what they called in camp lights out, you know? (laughs) Excuse me. The lights had to be off. Everybody had to be in bed. It was prohibited to play cards in the barracks. They didn't want the prisoners to have fun. Recreational projects were extremely limited and it depended on the good mood and gesture of the nachalnik, the prison wardens, the people in charge overseeing the gulags. Playing cards in your barrack was absolutely no no. If you were caught, you can be sent into solitary confinement or much worse. <coughs> Reb Mendel says, but there was a fellow Gregory. He said his name was Gregory. <coughs> he was a Russian prisoner, an inmate in Siberia. And he had access to cards. And at night, to entertain themselves, the inmates in his barrack would take out the cards and they always had games of cards. The prison warden smelled that something is wrong in this barrack. There's some legal activity going on. You know, they're having fun. They're having card games. And once in a while, he would barge in to make a sudden inspection and shock them and catch the criminals who are playing cards. Remendel says, but he never caught them. Whenever he came in, the cards would disappear. And he says, one particular evening... They were playing cards. And the warden comes in. He says, cards, cards? No, no, nobody's playing cards. He goes out. (coughs) A few minutes later, we hear his footsteps. And I see right away, they're professional. You know, all the cards are gathered immediately within five seconds. They're in somebody's hands. And sure enough, he's inside. He's like, I know that you guys are playing cards and I'm going to bust you. This is all in Russian, of course. Now you have to understand, there's no bookcases, there's no lockers, there's no safe, there's no drawers. This is a Siberian barrack where you barely had some straw and planks of wood to lay on. This wasn't a hotel. It wasn't even a, mo- it wasn't a Motel 6 or a bed and breakfast. It was Siberia. So he says, I want everybody to empty their pockets. Now, what type of pockets they had. They were wearing uniforms of prisoners. But whatever pockets they had, empty the pockets, and I'm going to search everywhere. And he searches and searches and searches up and down everybody's pockets, everybody's bed. Nothing. There's no cards. Nothing. <laughs> Mendel said the story. Absolutely invisible. They disappeared. He is so frustrated and annoyed. He finishes the inspection. He goes out in anger and fury, slams the door of the barrack out. Remember, says within five seconds of his departure, the cards emerge and they resume playing the cards a little more quietly this time. Remendel said, I had to figure out how these guys do it. They are geniuses. They are masters. How do they pull this off? So I go over to Gregory, who was my friend. He says he wasn't Jewish, and he came from a very different culture. But he respected me. He knew that I'm not part of the prison mafia. I'm not aggressive. I'm not abrasive. I have my religion, my faith. So we had a an understanding. And I say, Gregory, you have to explain to me this enigma. How in the world 
do you manage to hide those cards when he comes in? What did you do? You guys are miracle workers. Well, you send them to heaven for 10 minutes. And Gregory looks at me. He says, listen, I'm not going to tell this to anybody. But to you, I know I could trust you. I'm going to share this information. You see that fellow? He points to another guy in the barrack. He was the most professional pickpocketer in Moscow. Nobody can pickpocket like him. He's just brilliant at it. His hands are so skilled. He knows how to take things out and put them into your pocket without you even noticing it. So let me tell you what happens. When our warden comes into the barrack, this fellow takes the cards, and you know where he puts it? He puts it in the pocket of the prison warden. The prison warden checks everywhere. There's one place he doesn't think he has to check. That's his own pocket. How would the cards be there? And then, as he's about to leave the room, he slips it out of his pocket. And we continue playing. And Reb Mendel would look at the yeshiva students after he would finish the story. He had big, wise eyebrows. And he would lift them up. And he would say, boys... For me, the lesson was, we are all looking in other people's pockets. We forget that sometimes the treasures we're looking for are in our own pockets. I look in your pockets, you look in my pockets, I look in yours, 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 yours. Never do I think that the cards are in my own pocket. And he said, sometimes in life, you got to say, I have to go back to my own pocket. And I feel that in many ways, at least for me, this story gives perspective to times like this. This is, not a diff- this is not an easy time for anybody. Certainly not for a community. Certainly not for a vibrant Jewish community. Certainly not in the days of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur with so much focus on community and such a uh, extended, long lockdown. The effects of lockdown, I don't have to elaborate and I don't have to explain. Everybody feels it on their own skin. And (coughs) whether it's physical, emotional, psychological, financial, mental, spiritual. But in Judaism, we know that every crisis is also an opportunity. And every challenge is a vista to go into a deeper place. And one door closes, another door opens. In Judaism, they say that, why did the Chinese survive 5,000 years? Because the same character that they have for the word crisis, they have for the word opportunity. But in Judaism, it's much better than this. The word that we have for a breakdown, how do you say a breakdown in Hebrew? Mashber. The same word, mashber, is also the word that the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, uses for a birthing stool that a woman would sit on in the days of yore in order to give birth. Yoshevet alha mashber. In other words, the same word we use for breakdown is the word we use for birthing stool. Why? Because what Judaism believes is that we have the ability to be able to see every mashber. When something is broken, when something is not working, when something malfunctions, when something in our life goes down south, when something we experience upheaval, 
when we experience pain. It's also a mashber that allows us to give birth to a new awareness, a new depth, a new level of reality. We get to know ourselves in a new way. You get to realize that the basement of your soul is deeper than you have ever known. We get to focus on what really matters. We learn what is vital and what is not vital. We learn that life is not about impressing people or getting validation, but it's about deep spiritual truth and deep loving connections and bonds with ourselves, with our loved ones, with God, with our souls, and of course, with our friends, relatives, families. It's at these moments that people have an opportunity to transform themselves. And as Reb Mendel heard from Gregory, it's at this moment that I have to go into my own pockets. I have to look for joy, meaning, purpose. In my own pockets. I have to find God in my own pockets. I have to find truth in my own pockets. I have to find happiness in my own pockets. Yes, at other times I look in your pocket and you look in my pocket and we look in each other's pockets and you know what? <laughs> There's something fun about that too. But there comes a time in history where I have to go back into my home, my bedroom, my marriage, my relationships, my own brain, my own inner self and find out who I am on a deeper level. And find inspiration not from without, but from within. It's hard because the external stimuli is not there. Because the external fanfare and drama is not there. Nobody wishes it on anybody and themselves. And we hope and pray that this ends very, very soon. And all of you emerge in full health and safety and security, psychologically, physically and spiritually unscathed. Especially the children and the youth who are suffering the most, especially from a mental point of view which may God protect everybody during these times, because these are times that addictions become much stronger. Desperation, mental stress, anxiety, everything that has been going on before comes out to the fore with much more ferociousness. If you had a great marriage, your marriage could now become even greater. But if you had a miserable marriage, your marriage is not going to suffer now, because everybody's on each other's heads for 24 hours a day. Literally. So this is an opportunity where I really can't afford just to live life on cruise control. It's so important to be able to go into my pockets and to know that it's inside of me. I am, I am a fragment of infinity. I am an ambassador of God in this world. I am an ambassador of love and light and hope and healing and authenticity and wisdom and redemption. So I bless and pray together with all of you, my dearest friends, distant physically, but as close as ever spiritually, that this Yom Kippur and this Sukkot and this Simchas Torah, we all have the courage to be able to dig into our own pockets. And you'll see that your pockets are very, very deep because your soul is a piece of infinity. You are a derivative of God's infinite oneness. Each and every one of us is a manifestation of divine light in this world. And therefore, if I can only go into really my pockets, the pockets of my soul, the pockets of my heart, the pockets of my, my mind, I will find not only a deck of cards, 
but I will, I will also find tremendous reservoirs of resilience, faith, inspiration, wisdom, wholesomeness. May all of you be blessed with an extraordinary year, a Shana Tovag of health, happiness, prosperity, healing, healing for the Australia, healing for the whole world, and most importantly, a year of individual and collective redemption consciousness. Thank you. Thank you, my dear friend, Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson. What an honor, privilege, pleasure, all of the above. Thank you, opposite you, And I'm feeling very close, albeit physically far, emotionally and spiritually very, very close. For those who don't know, Rabbi Jacobson has had probably three hours sleep last night because I know he was texting me a few hours ago. And then he just literally, it's early in the morning and um, he's got his tie on. So people might think that he's been up for hours and it's middle of the day. <laughs> In all, in all, in all honesty, I texted Rabbi. I was scared I'm going to oversleep because <laughs> I didn't get much sleep, and I'm a little bit under the wet. The weather is changing here in New York, so I got a little cold. So I asked, I asked Rabbi Moshe that if I'm not on, he should call me and wake me up. But thank God we're here together. <laughs> you're here and you're wide awake, and it's beautiful. And Rabbi Jacobson, you're no stranger to Australia and to Melbourne. You've been here many times, and. We look forward to welcoming you back physically again, Mitzvahim, very, very soon. Yeah, listen, every trip that I made to Australia was incredibly moving and inspiring for me because, you know, you may take it for granted that you're living there. And I know now is a difficult time, of course, but, you know, when you come from the United States and you go to this little shtetl, Melbourne or Sydney and other communities in Australia, and you see the infrastructure that you and your parents and your grandparents built, over the last 60, 70 years, in terms of education, in terms of social connections, in terms of communities, synagogues, camps, schools, and the whole infrastructure of Jewish life, it's really uh, incredibly, incredibly inspiring. And I know that your power of love and community will allow you not only to endure the crisis, but really turn the mashber into the greatest birthing stool of the Australian Jewish community. So, Rabbi Jacobson, lots of questions have already been coming in. And, you know, we've got here tonight over 400 people. And that tells you on social media here on Zoom, tells you how valuable and how treasured your words are. Other people want to hear it. And um, a question that's come in, actually, which is a great segue from your story of, of the legendary Chassid Remenda Futafal, so how people searched in other people rather than searching within themselves. But and you had a beautiful positive spin, but someone's asked, what if I keep looking at others and I'm only able to see the negative in others and somehow I don't like to focus on myself. So the same story, but using it from a different perspective. All I see is the negative in other people. Right. <laughs> Excuse me. It's a great, <laughs> it's a really great question. And I would give you two pieces of advice. One piece of advice is you need to feel better about yourself. The moment you feel better about yourself, you don't have to see the negativity in other people. Because if your life is full and fulfilled, even if there is negativity in other people, I'm not so busy with it. When you realize how much potential you have, when you realize how vital your contribution is, when you realize, as the Talmud says, 
I find it such an empowering statement that every person is obliged to say, the cosmos was created for me. Sanhedrin 37. <laughs> when you realize this, that you have an indispensable contribution, you're an indispensable note in God's cosmic symphony. So you want to play your music. Where do I have the mental space to sit and analyze and dissect the negativity in other people? So the first thing I would suggest to you is go back to your pockets and ask yourself, what's really bothering you? When I'm looking for the bad in you, it's because I'm trying to fill a void. I don't like myself. And somehow by putting you down, I lift myself up. But the way to live is lift yourself up. Don't put other people down. You become a powerhouse of joy, of love, of light, of clarity, of wisdom, of friendship. Every one of us is an ambassador of God in this world. There's no time to waste. God gave us a mission to change the world, each one in our own corner. So that's number one. Ask yourself, who am I and what is my calling? And get involved with it passionately and never underestimate your power and capability. That's number one. Number two, what I would say is, you know... (sighs) Judging people and dismissing people and seeing the negativity in people, more than anything, it comes from, I know it with myself, it comes from ignorance. The more I get to know people intimately, people share what's really going on, the less judgmental you become. Not because I always agree with them, but because people are so complex. There's so many layers to each story. People sometimes have so many limited tools. We have to be able to learn how to see a bigger picture, how to be mature, how to understand that nobody's perfect. Some people are challenged. Some people's toolbox in life is a very limited toolbox. And can I really judge them? Think about sometimes your own family members who make mistakes, and they may hurt you. But sometimes they're doing the best they can with the tools that they have. But our tools are very limited. And what about people who carry around deep trauma that's unresolved? Today we know in psychology and in neuroscience that there are people who experience things and unconsciously their brains are frozen. Literally their amygdalas are frozen. They don't even have choices. They want to be better husbands. They want to be better fathers. They want to be better mothers. They want to be better people. But they're triggered and they're stuck. And all I can do is simply have compassion for how stuck I may be or you may be. And my response ought to be education bring awareness to people. So I think the more you get to know what is really going on, the less I see the bad in people, and the more one sees, really, that each and every one of us has our limited tools and perspectives, and when we can expand our horizons, we literally expand our choices. Thank you. Thank you for that beautiful two perspectives. I want to, you know, when... Now, in a, in a unique time between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, part of the 10 days of Seretimeh Teshuvah, and the notion of Teshuvah, as we just heard so beautifully from Michal, is about returning to yourself, but it's also about a time for forgiveness. And I want to ask you specifically around forgiveness. You know, we all talk about that we need to forgive, we need to forget, but what if I can't forget? What if I just, I want to forgive so deeply, but I was hurt so deeply that I can't forget what do you recommend then? How do you overcome that? Yes, wow. That's a very important and, and 
serious question and a sincere question. Some of us have been hurt in ways that we can't forget. We can't just move on and say it never happened and forgive and make believe everything is dandy and beautiful. So here is, here is, here is the frank response, and I'm saying this from a very Jewish perspective. If somebody doesn't apologize, if somebody doesn't take accountability, if somebody hurt me, they don't want to make amends. They don't say, I'm sorry, nothing. Judaism doesn't obligate you to forgive them. It calls it midas chasidus, which means it is a very pious thing to do. But you're not obligated if they didn't ask forgiveness. Because if somebody didn't ask forgiveness, I'm not obligated to forgive them because asking forgiveness is the minimum they do to remove a little bit of the hurt. It's remorse. It's saying, I'm sorry. If somebody didn't say, I'm sorry, I'm not obligated to forgive them. The Ariza, Rabbi Isaac Luria, 16th century Kabbalist of Tzafas instituted a nightly prayer called Rebbeinu Shalaylam, where voluntarily a person says, I want to forgive anybody who hurt me today. But it's not an obligation. It's interesting because you cannot demand it from somebody. Even if somebody says, I'm sorry, and wants to make amends, Jewish law says, try to forgive them. It doesn't say you have to. It says, try, do whatever you can to forgive them. Why? The answer is you can't force somebody to forgive. You know why? If I force you to forgive, it's not real forgiveness. It's superficial forgiveness. You're going to forgive because the rabbi said you have to forgive. Because your mother or mother-in-law said you have to forgive. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is very, very internal. Remember that. Forgiveness is not lip service. Forgiveness is I reach a new space in my heart where I'm capable of forgiving you. How does one do that? We do it by remembering a few things. And that is we do it by remembering that people are really far from perfect. You're not perfect, but am I perfect? You have made mistakes, but have I not made mistakes? We recognize the imperfection of people. That's number one. Number two, we recognize that our core self cannot be destroyed by anybody. There is a self that is divine and remains untarnished, invincible, and indestructible. Judaism always believed that at the core of your identity, you have all the confidence, the joy, the optimism, the possibility, and the potential, just like God himself is indestructible and invincible, so you are, because your soul is that the mystics say, your soul is a spark of infinity, a piece of God, as it were. When you know that, that despite, I have may have been hurt, I may have been hurt or insulted or hurt in this way or mistreated, and it's true, and it's painful, it's painful. But nonetheless, there's a deeper self that remains absolutely untarnished. Number three has to do with this. When I carry around grudges and resentment, it's not only you who's hurting, I'm hurting. They say that people who carry around resentments are like people who uh, inhale smoke, hoping that their enemy will be will be affected. It's like putting myself on fire, hoping that you will burn. Resentment doesn't only affect you, it affects me. My mental space is compromised by negative, toxic energy. So I forgive you, not only to forgive you, I also forgive you to be able to forgive me, to be able to accept me, to be able to move on with life. These three awarenesses, people are not perfect. Your core is perfect, and nobody can take that away from you. And number three, 
I don't want to walk around with negative energy. It doesn't harm you only. It also harms me. When a soul is free, you have a different level of serenity. These meditations can help us go into a space of forgiveness, but it's about a very genuine experience and nobody can force it upon you. Sometimes you're not ready. I also have to say one more thing, and that is if there's active abuse or there's an active criminal, then forgiveness is actually forbidden because then I am an accomplice of the crime. If there's somebody who's doing bad things and by me forgiving them, I simply help them continue it, then you're not allowed to forgive. So all of these things have to be taken into consideration when we think about forgiveness. Thank you. You know, I find it fascinating. You speak about to enable to forgive others enables you to forgive yourself. Something that um, I personally challenge, challenge, and I'm sure many are, and someone actually asked this on the chat over here privately, how do you forgive yourself versus taking responsibility for yourself? So today we're living in an age where it's a feel-good world and everyone, forgive yourself, love yourself, everything is good, but they don't need to really wake up in the morning and take responsibility. How do you balance those two? Beautiful, beautiful. and taking responsibility. Beautiful question. How do you balance forgiving yourself versus taking responsibility of yourself and not using self-love as an excuse, just <coughs> really not to challenge myself to mend my mistakes and do what I got to do? It's a beautiful question. The answer to this, the most profound answer I have found to this comes from a teaching of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi, also known as the Alter Rebbe, he was the founder of Chabad, the author of the Tanya and Shulchan Aruch Harav. He has a, a book called Lakuti Torah. And there he says something very, very magnificent. He says the key to synthesize these two emotions, self-acceptance, self-forgiveness, and yet the ability to challenge myself, which in Kabbalah is known as the thin synthesis of the polar opposites of Chesed and Gvura. Chesed is self-love and love to others, but it's often blinding. You know, I just love me and I'm so, I'm so beautiful and handsome and cute. I don't know, handsome, but I'm so adorable and, uh, and then lovable. <laughs> Excuse me. And Gvur is really, you know, I'm trying to discipline myself and stimulate myself and challenge myself. The synthesis between the two, Rabbi Maishi, is what's called Midas Arachim, compassion. Compassion which is the attribute of Yaakov, of Jacob. And the Zohar says it's an attribute that's it goes from the highest to the lowest. What is compassion? Compassion has that ability to really have compassion for myself, compassion for my mistakes, compassion for my judgment, for my uh, inappropriate reactions, compassion for those toxic forces inside of me that cause me not to live life to the fullest. Those voices inside of me, the wounds inside of me, the ignorance inside of me, the fears, the insecurity, the toxicity, the pain, whatever it may be in your life or in my life, that literally rob me from living my life to the fullest, from sucking the marrow out of life, from being the person I could become. Can I have compassion for it? Simply compassion for my mistakes, compassions for my inappropriate words, thoughts, actions, behaviors that really took me, hurt me and may have hurt others. 
when I have compassion for something, I'm not naive. I'm not justifying it. I'm not turning it into a mitzvah. The Kotzke Rebbe once said, the Talmud says, when you sin once, it's a sin. When you sin twice, it becomes nasalaika hetter, it becomes permissible, because, you know, it's habit. He says, what happens when you sin a third time? He says, now it becomes a mitzvah. Compassion turns, doesn't turn anything into a mitzvah. I'm, can I just have compassion for my journey? And you know what? When I can have compassion for my journey, I can have compassion for your journey. And what that does means I can recognize my failures, but without killing myself, without telling myself, I am worthless and valueless. I am the scum of the earth, forgive me. But that's what people tell themselves. I am evil. I am hopeless. God hates me. I am dysfunctional. I am sick. I am a traumatized, helpless victim. I can have compassion for my mistakes, for my journeys, and then realize when I have compassion that I can do much better. And paradoxically, the more compassion you have, listen to this, the more compassion you have, the more tshuva you can do. Because when I don't have compassion, (coughs) I repress a lot of these voices that are really challenging me, and they're going to leak out in different ways and continue to paralyze me. But when I can look at all of them, and I don't have to repress them to get rid of the pain, I could sit with the pain, I could see it, and I can really have compassion for them, paradoxically, I'm not a prisoner to it anymore. So by act, so the two become one, the two converge. I don't know if everybody's understanding me, but the two, you get me? I know the women understand. But the, 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 the two converge, at least you say, what's the, what's the balance between self-compassion and challenging yourself? And the truth is, the Alter Rebbe says, the two really feed into each other. Because if I have real compassion for what's going on inside of me, I look at it and I say, wow, look how mistaken I was. Or look what a narrow perspective I was operating from. Or see how I was triggered. I don't justify it. I don't rationalize. Let me be very practical. Let's say your wife tells you something. And I know now with lockdown, a lot of this is happening. Your wife tells you something. And you're triggered like crazy. You just go into a rage. Either you explode or you implode. She doesn't even know. It's inside of you, right? What does self-love look like? Self-love in Judaism doesn't look like, oh... I'm angry. I'm angry. That's wonderful. Anger is the best thing in the world. No. But Judaism says, don't deny it. Don't repress it. And don't kill yourself. Can you have compassion for what's going on in your system? My wife said this. And I lost it. What was triggered in my brain? How much pain? How much trauma is there inside of me? I may not be aware of it. That she just triggered. Can you make space for it? Can you have compassion for it? Can you sob for it? And then tomorrow when it happens, I could watch that trigger happening. And I can choose to create new neural pathways and respond differently. Yeah, I just just before I continue, I want to say literally there's tons of questions coming in. And forgive me, everyone, if I'm not going to get to all your questions because so far there's at least 20 questions, but I will try and, and get to them all. Um, one of them that, um, that that really resonated with me, someone wrote over here, 
I am so busy from morning till night, yet I am so bored. How do I create some excitement in my life, specifically during lockdown? <laughs> I would say your name, but I don't want to read your name. <laughs> yes, but the truth is, it's not just one person. I think we all, uh, we all appreciate the question. I am so busy, and yet I don't know what I'm busy with. I'm so bored, right? To quote the great Jewish Kabbalist, Woody Allen, who said, I think I'm feeling bored, and I think the reason for that is me. <laughs> Excuse me. I think, I think, I'm going to tell you a little story. Last year, Rabbi Adin Evan Yisrael, Rabbi Adin Steinsaltz passed away. He was one of the greatest scholars of the generation. He lived in Jerusalem. He translated, the first one to translate the Talmud into English, into Hebrew. Really brilliant man. He died last year. <coughs> Rabbi Adin Steinsaltz. And uh, one of his students shared this with me. He said he went over to him once. And he said, Rabbi Adin, you know the prayers every day are the same. We use the same text. Morning prayer, afternoon prayer, evening prayer, Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah. He said, it gets so boring. Why can't we, you know, change up the text? Give it some excitement, diversity. So Rabbi Steinzels looked at him and he said, the text may be the same, but the person praying is never the same. Who I am today is not who I was yesterday. My moods are different. My perspectives are different. My challenges are different. What comes up is different. A person is a living, evolving creature. So the text may be the same, but what I see in the text is completely different. So Rabbi Adin says, you're saying that the text is boring. I know the text is identical, but the person davening every day is in a different mode. So what I see in the text, the way I talk to God, the way I talk to my soul is different. And Rabbi Adin looks at him and says, and if not, I'm sorry. So the boy looks at him and says, and what happens if I am not different today than yesterday, I'm also the same. Then he, he looks at him and he says, then it's not the davening that's boring, then it's you who's boring. <laughs> You're the boring guy. Stop blaming the text. Stop blaming the davening. You're the boring guy. Which, of course, is what the Baal Shem Tov teaches, that God recreates the world every moment. What does that mean? What does that mean? He couldn't create it once and let it go like a clock? And the answer is, every moment you could see something new in the world. And if I'm not seeing something new in the world, it's because my lenses are old. <laughs> I have to change my lenses. Now, what I would suggest practically to you is as follows. At such times when we're busy, very busy, and yet we find ourselves bored, I would suggest to each and every one of us, take on a new project Challenge yourself, stimulate yourself with something new in your life. There's so much that people can do. It can be an organization, it can be a website, it can be a movement, it can be a Zoom meeting, it can be a class, it could be something connected to kindness, generosity, healing, unity, love, spiritual consciousness, expansiveness of wisdom. It could be something small, something big. Think big and say, here, Every day I'm going to take an hour of the day and I'm going to challenge myself and think. 
new stuff. It could be something created to shidduchim, something for education, something for teens, something for children, something for the elderly, something for Jews, something for non-Jews, something universal, global, something local. But get involved in something. When you become an ambassador, when you become a leader, when you give, it comes back to you. And you don't have time to be bored, not only because you're busy, but because you're stimulated by the feedback. The love that we give to people comes right back to us. I'm going to remind you of one more thing, and that is a great uh, experiment that was made in the early 1900s by a French naturalist. His name was Henri Farbe with caterpillars. It's a brilliant experiment. Caterpillars follow each other in a procession. You can have 300 caterpillars following each other. And the leader is always searching for food, and they all follow him. Head to toe, head to, head to leg, head near leg, head near leg. 300, 200, 250. He wanted to see something interesting. He took a group of caterpillars, he took a flower pot, he turned it over, and he put a bunch of caterpillars at the rim of the flower pot, so now they were going in circles, which means there was no leader searching for food because they were going around and around and around and around. But they are processionary. They love following each other, but there was no leader. In the middle of the flower pot, he put food. He wanted to see which caterpillar is going to tear itself away first from the circle to go get the food. Because again, genetically, instinctively, they follow each other. And they're all following. And the food is in the middle. You know what the end of this experiment was? He watched the caterpillars for seven days until every one of them, till the last one, died from starvation, dehydration, and exhaustion. Not one of them tore itself away from the circle to get the food. Now, for me, this was an incredible lesson when I came across the scientific experiment the first time. Two things. Number one, it teaches you how social conformity can sometimes destroy my life. I would rather die but not leave the circle. <laughs> I'm going to continue following, following, following. Your food is in the middle. Get out of that circle and go get your food. Become alive. No. I have to be in the circle. I don't want to stand out. I don't want to be me. I don't want to make waves. Wow. But I also learned something else. These caterpillars confused being busy with being productive. Sometimes I'm very busy. You know, I'm so busy, busy, busy. The question I have to ask myself is, we're all busy. Everybody today is busy. You know that, right? We have, most, we have more time than our ancestors ever dreamed of, and yet we're more busy. Isn't it amazing? The more time we have, the more busy we are. That's the fact. Who has time to sit, think, we're busy, busy? Those caterpillars were also busy. But ask yourself this question. Can I really find out if my busyness is bringing me closer to my true goals in life. There are people that never stop working, never. And you know what? There's always more work to do. There's another dollar that I could make. There's something else I can accomplish. But is that really bringing me closer to my ultimate goals in life? That's another question you have to ask yourself. Don't be like that caterpillar. Thank you. Hopefully we're all stepping out of line to get our food. I, uh, I'm combining a few of your questions. The people who have asked these questions in different terminology. Some said we're divided. How do you unite, heal a fractured community? But essentially, what they're asking is, Melbourne has been, you know, so positively famous. With we were famous for being the most livable city, 
And that's something that we heard, to, you know, that please, officially we've lost that, although we're still the most livable city people. We are. Melbourne's an extraordinary community and um, don't ever, ever doubt our wonderful community. But there's definitely been, over the last couple of weeks, a strong, strong challenge confronting our community, which is, you know, someone told me today when we had the bushfires here, it brought out the best, but COVID in the Australians and somehow COVID is bringing out the worst. And it's been a divide. How do we heal a fractured community? How do we yeah. reunite? Yes, yes. It's a great, great question. And I want to tell you something. To quote, paraphrase Thomas Paine, the famous writer, these are times that try people's souls. Remember that. These are times that try people's souls. They bring out the best in people, and they bring out, they bring out insanity in people. <laughs> it's a fact. I'll tell you where I got inspiration from. In the early days of corona here in New York, March 2020, New York was hit very, very heavily with countless deaths on a daily basis. Many people in our communities, friends, neighbors, relatives, mentors, teachers... It was devastating. Still is. I saw an interview. Somebody sent me a clip or I saw a video on the news. There was a woman in the Bronx. She was a physician in a hospital for many years. And she was in charge on the corona department in that hospital in the Bronx. And every day they were bringing in dozens or hundreds of patients. This is the early days. And there was no ability to help them. Remember, in the early days, they put everybody on ventilators. Many died. They knew much less than they know now, even though now they also don't know so much. And uh, there were not enough nurses, there were not enough doctors, there were not enough beds in the ICUs, there were not enough ventilators. And this poor woman, who was the chief physician, was literally running from patient to patient. Sleepless days, sleepless nights, you could see it on her. She once walks out of the hospital, it's the first days of corona, first week, she's walking out of the hospital. And an interviewer from a TV network comes over to her, says, can I ask you a question? She says, yes. He says, how are you not falling apart? How are you with so much death, with so much devastation and a sense of helplessness? They didn't know what to do for so many patients. How are you keeping it together? This woman looked him in the eyes and she said something I will never forget. She said these words. All my training in 12 years of medical school, years of residency, and then decades of serving as a doctor in the hospital, all these years was all training for this moment. If at this moment I'm not going to rise to the occasion and be there for my patients and become a voice and a power for healing and clarity and love, it was all wasted. Even the TV reporter was taken aback because what she articulated was something so true. And that is sometimes all of our training for decades is really for one moment. And if this moment I squander it, it was a waste. This was the training. You know, security guards are trained sometimes, decades, for a moment that they have to rise to the occasion. You don't want to forfeit this moment. The Baal Shem Tov said, 
a soul comes down for 70, 80 years. He's talking in the 1700s. The lifespan was 40. He said a soul comes down for 70, 80 years to do a favor for another Jew, physically or spiritually. So my whole life, I live a life and I do many things. The Baal Shem Tev said, but the real purpose was to do one favor to one Jew, physically or spiritually. Mordechai tells Esther in the palace, you remember? You think you went to the palace in order to be able to be the queen of Persia, the first lady? That's not why you went there. God could have chosen another girl. You went there because this is a moment that's never going to come back, that you could save your people. Either you will embrace it or you will forfeit it. I feel that today, today, God has upped the stakes. The tension is high. The bases are loaded, as they say. We can either score home run after home run after home run, or we could drop the ball and squander it terribly. This is a time for real leadership. It's a time where people who have inner resources, and all of us have inner resources, have the ability to maximize your potentials, flex your spiritual, emotional, psychological, and physical muscles like never before. It's a time to live and become the best version of yourself. This is not a time where you could let go of your duties. There is too much at stake. There is too much crisis. There is too much pain. There is too much anxiety. There is too much confusion. There is too much fear. There is too much uncertainty. In our circles, too much loss for people to be oblivious, indifferent, selfish, narcissistic, and become occupied with pettiness. As I said, these are times that try people's souls. So what I would suggest to everybody is, yes, there are people, frankly, who become very, very petty. There are people that these times really bring out the worst in them. They enter into a place of panic and hysteria. And I'll be frank with you, people who are not rational. They don't think rationally anymore. Big things become small things. Small things become big things. But what I would tell you, and I would suggest to you as a brother to brothers and as a brother to sister is, don't lose your greatness at this moment. These are the moments where we have to shine like never before. These are moments where we have to rise to the occasion and bring out the best in ourselves and the best in people. This means transcend judgmentalism, transcend vindictiveness, transcend irrationality, transcend anger, jealousy, and instinctive reactions that come from a traumatized amygdala rather than from a prefrontal cortex. Transcend my petty, smaller, more base self. Not because it doesn't exist. We all have these forces. But because at these moments, you want to make a choice to step into a place of greatness. Thank you. Thank you. You know that most powerful. I still remember when you shared that story about the guard of Beckman Palace that didn't capture that moment that he trade for 12 years. Or unbelievable. Something. 1981. You know, this it's unbelievable. I was thinking if I should say it, but then I thought, you know, my answers are already too long. My answers are already too long. So I scratched that. But since our dear moderator, my dear beloved friend, Rabbi Moishi mentions it, it's an amazing story. In 1981, 
I don't know if you guys remember, some of you probably remember, everybody looks so young on the screen. And probably even younger in reality. If even on Zoom you look young, certainly in reality. So there was this, this, this fellow who literally broke into the Buckingham Palace one morning and he held the queen hostage. Literally, he held the queen hostage for hours. You remember the story? It was crazy. And he told her, do everything as you do every morning so nobody should suspect foul play. Nobody should suspect anything strange. And she told him, this, this, this abductor, that she calls security every morning to say that everything is all right. He says, so do that. So she gets on the phone to the chief security officer who was in charge on her personal security. And he says, good morning, your majesty, good morning. And she says, everything is fine. And then she adds, I don't need fire for my cigarette because I have fire here already in the room. Now, that was a strange thing for her to say. She has fire in the room. She doesn't need fire for a cigarette. This was, of course, her way of telling him there's fire in the room. He didn't get it. He didn't get it. Later, they found him, and she, he was abducted, and she was fine. But he was immediately fired. It was an incredible, incredible moment of awareness. Here was a man. He was a decorated general. He was a brilliant, brilliant and brave military man who dedicated his life for the British Commonwealth, for Great Britain. But as somebody said once, all your life you were trained for this moment. Your antennas had to be up when you hear such a line. That's why they trained you, not me. And at that moment, he just dropped the ball. And I think often in life, this happens to so many of us. You know, it's this moment I was trained for. This moment, something happens to your child. Something happens to your spouse. Something happens to you. Something happens to somebody else. We fall apart. It's normal. Have compassion. But I have to tell myself, all my training, all my wisdom was for this moment. For this moment. Don't don't drop the ball. Embrace the ball. Jump into this space. This, This is weird. Your purpose lay. I feel very strongly that we're living in such times where things are so loaded and intense that it's really a tremendous opportunity to bring out the greatest and the best in people. And you see it everywhere. You see everywhere when there's a new leadership that's emerging from people who are having the courage to be able to transcend pettiness. But I have to transcend pettiness. I have to. We're going to get one last question in because it's literally coming up to nine o'clock. Sorry, 10 o'clock. You're, you're eight o'clock. But um, I'm going to combine three or four questions here. And again, forgive me for those who I didn't get to your questions. This is essentially a question around family life. You, you, you sort of alluded to it and you mentioned it that um, people whose relationships were strong potentially could get stronger. People that challenge relationship could, could God forbid, deteriorate at this time. Do you have, this is probably one of the things that we are seeing an increase in potential in lockdown is family violence, but not just, I'm talking about, I'm not just talking about between husband and wife, I'm talking about challenges between parents and children. Um, equally, if you, I, I know I'm mixing them, I'm just trying to combine four questions over here. Someone wrote who's single and they're trying to keep to the law, but they have to be at home all by the loan, all by themselves. How do they balance that? I know that's three different questions. Couples, children, singles. But if you somehow could magically combine them all, it would be incredible. 
I mean, thank you for the confidence that I can perform magic, but not yet. Corona has brought out different qualities in me, but not uh, the magical quality at the moment. But thank you for the faith and the confidence. Hmm. Listen, what you're asking, obviously, a very serious question. And the way I think to combine them is just to give one general perspective that I think is, is very valuable today. <coughs> and that is, let's face it, a lot of things are going to come out now. A lot of things have come out. I know here in my neck of the woods that you call, we call America, there have been hundreds of thousands of teenagers, children, who have been affected dramatically by lockdown. Remember, everybody went onto screens. You know how much addiction? Gaming addiction, screening addiction, you'll forgive me, pornography. With teens especially, of course, with younger people, with adults, that's what happens. A lack of social life, you know, creates a lot, a lot of challenges, a lot of problems. I would say, at these moments, it is so critical to be fully connected in the most powerful way with all your loved ones. Connection, 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 attachment, attachment, attachment is the name of the game today. And it's not a game. It's very serious. What does connection mean? Let's talk about marriages. We have to work at our issues today. We can't anymore afford. It used to be, you know, two years ago, you got into a fight with your wife, so you went on a business trip for three weeks, yeah? You ran to shul. A class here, a class there. Today, God says, no, no, there's no running anywhere. Your house is the shul. Your house is the Beis HaMikdash. Your bedroom is where it's all happening. Your kitchen is the center of life. We have to spend time and we have to be honest with each other. I don't know exactly the rules in Australia. Forgive me for my ignorance. But as all, if at all possible, take walks every day. 30 minutes, 45 minutes, if you can, take walks, spend the time just to connect, just to be real, to be authentic. And also remember, no two people are being affected the same way. We are not all in the same boat. We're all in the same ocean, but we're not all in the same boat. Your wife and your husband are experiencing the aftermath and the effects of corona in different ways. Your children are experiencing in different ways. We have to respect each other. We have to respect different responses to things. You know, let's face it. My mother is a widow, and she was on lockdown for a very long time. And she told me one day, she says, you know, people feel bad for me because I'm home alone. She had to do the Seder alone. And she says, it's not fun. But she says, it's really not depressing for me. I know what to do with myself when I'm alone. I know what to do. But a lot of people don't. So their reactions are very, very different. We can't judge each other so much. It's a very difficult time. Husbands react one way, wives react different way, different couples, different people. So the most important thing is to listen to each other, to connect to each other, to be honest with each other, and to support each other. It's so important with couples. It's so important with parents and children. Create family bonding as much as possible, as deep as possible, as often as possible, and in the most diverse ways as possible, whatever that means. Whether it's playing ball or playing board games or putting on the music in the house and dancing or baking cake together, if you could send a few pieces here, hanging out together, whatever it is, but get your family life intact. Just 
informal, casual, fun, bonding, whatever that looks like, learning together, davening together, singing together, celebrating together, arguing in a respectful way. This is a time for each and every one of us to be able to connect deeply, listen to each of your children, understand what they're going through, be there with them, be there for them. This is very, very important. A lot of children and teens have been lost over the last 18 months. They have not gone back to school. Here they opened up the schools. A lot of kids didn't go back to school. They're not interested. They tasted a year of freedom on the screen. What do I have to sit in the classroom? These are serious consequences. We're not going to be able to avoid all of them, but we have to really be present with each and every one of our children. When it comes to singles, what I would say to you is, I think it is so important for you to remember two things. Number one, it's a time for all of us, including for singles, but it becomes critical for singles to develop a very deep and powerful relationship with yourself and with God. Many of us over the years didn't have to do it. We went to shul, and sometimes it's just robotic, you know? The chaz and davins, baruch shama v'haya oilam, baruch Hashem avarech, yizgadol v'yizgadash, and you go back home. But now... It doesn't work anymore. I'm sitting alone in my room, davening. Who's there? Nobody's there. I don't have to catch up to the minion. There's no pressure that the Kiddush is going to start and I'm going to miss a little bit of the jalapeno herring or the kugel or the cholent. I'm alone in my room. So who's here? It's just me. Even my wife is not looking. So it's just me and God. So it's really a time to get to know God in a very deep way. You may daven for five minutes or 20 minutes, for a half an hour, for an hour, or for three minutes. But sincerity, truth, talk to God face to face, soul to soul, heart to heart, in English if necessary. This year is Tavshin Pei Beis 5782. The acronym is Tehei Shnas Ponim Beponim. It's going to be the year of face to face. Paradoxically, when we're on lockdown, we can also touch each other, Ponim Beponim, face to face, face to face with yourself, face to face with God. If you're alone, especially, it's so important to develop a deep, spiritual, vibrant life that's inside of me. There's a fascinating insight of the, of the Briskerov. He said that the Rebrevola Briskerov, the Talmud says in Sanhedrin, page 20, that Solomon ruled the world, then he ruled Israel, then he ruled Jerusalem, then he only ruled the palace, then he ruled his family, then he ruled his bed, and then he lost everything. And he remained a king over his stick. The only one that listened to him was his stick. Because he lost it all. So the question is, how do you, how are you a king over your stick? And the answer is, because he was a king inside. He didn't need people to be a king. He was an aristocrat inside. When you're a real king, you're a king even in your own room. And if you only have a stick, it's expressed in a stick. Sometimes your leadership is expressed with thousands of people. Sometimes your leadership is expressed with a stick. We have to find the malchus inside, your nobility inside. The other thing I would tell singles, and really all of us, is (coughs) become innovative. This is a time not to wallow in our loneliness and despondency, but use your despondency and make it a trigger and a catalyst to create something new in your life. And as I said before, take on a project, build something, create a group with other people that will build something. Use this time to make a difference. 
and you will see incredible, incredible results. Today, whoever gets involved in outreach work of being an ambassador of love, light, and hope, whatever it looks like for you, there's endless things you can do, as I said before, for endless demographics, for endless ages, different types of things. But take on a mission, become a giver, become a source of leadership and inspiration. It will change everything for you. Because when we become givers, we become godlike. God creates life. God gives life. When we give, we become godlike, which means we become most ourselves. Thank you. I, I believe in magic. I believe in miracles. You perform the miracles. So how's that? Tell my mother-in-law. Tell my mother-in-law. I'll, I want to tell you a story. Can I just share a little story? I will never stop you from talking if you have I just, I remember the story now. I had a teacher who passed away a few weeks ago. His name was Rabbi Yoel Khan. He was one of the, he was the chief oral scribe of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And I learned by him for many years. He died in August at the age of 91. Not Corona. He survived, he beat Corona. But he died from heart failure. I heard from him this story. He heard it from the person herself. The Lubavitcher Rebbe had a mother. Her name was Rebetzin Chana. Chana Schneerson. She was a very special woman. She died on the 6th of Tishrei, 1964. Vav Tishrei, today is her yard site. So he once said, Rabbi El said that he heard, he heard the story from her. It just touched me very deeply. She told him, her husband, the Lubavitcher Rebbe's father, his name was Rabbi Levi Yitzchak. He was the chief rabbi of Dniepropetrovsk. That's a city in the Ukraine, a large Jewish community. And the communists arrested him in 1939 they tortured him, and they exiled him to some remote hicktown in Kazakhstan, a place called, a little hicktown called Chile. He was living literally with pigs, no non-Jews, a home, I don't know if you call it home, a, 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 a hut infested with all types of infectious diseases and animals and insects. It was a difficult, excruciatingly painful existence for a few years. At the end of the war, they got permission to move him to Almaty in Kazakhstan, where there was a Jewish community, and he died there shortly after as a result of his years in exile. His wife, the Rebbe's mother, Rebbe Tzinchano, whose yard said is today, voluntarily left her home and went to join her husband in this remote exile place. And... Uh, she said that she was talking to him. She told us Rabbi Yelkar, he's talking to her husband. And he says, nonchalantly, he says there was a few days he couldn't get water. He didn't have water. A few days. Okay. I don't know if it was one day, two days, three days. I don't know. He didn't say the number. A few days. And then he says, oh, finally, <laughs> finally, somebody brought me a little water. So he says in Yiddish to his wife, he says, Ich hab sich it brought me back to life. Because it allowed me to do the mitzvah of washing my hands in the morning. And she says to the Biel, she says, my husband said after getting water after a few days, what gave him life? What gave him life was not that he can drink. That's what I would think, right? You can drink. You can quench your thirst. I'm sure he wanted to drink too. But what gave him real life was 
that he could fulfill the mitzvah of washing your hands, of purifying your hands in the morning because you're God's servant in the world. For me, it embodies what inner nobility means. A person, under the worst circumstances, doesn't lose his spiritual dignity. Of course he wanted water to drink. He was a human being. He can't survive without water. But his dignity as a God's ambassador in the world was intact. And the fact that he was surrounded literally with pigs, I mean the animals, pigs, I have nothing against pigs, I'm just saying that's the type of environment he was in, didn't take that away from him. So when he was a chief rabbi of a huge city, where he was far away on lockdown, real lockdown in Kazakhstan, in the gulags of the Stalinist evil regime of communism, that core remained untarnished. And when he gets water, he says, Ah! I came to life. I can wash my hands. I'm purifying my hands before prayer. So this is an example, I think, that each of us in our own way could learn what it means that even when my external circumstances are changed and very limited, I'm in my own house and everything changes, nonetheless, your inner nobility, your inner dignity, what really makes you human, what really makes you Jewish, nothing and nobody can ever, ever take away from you. Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi Jacobson. For those who want to hear more of Rabbi Jacobson, you can go on the yeshiva.net and there's literally hundreds or maybe even thousands of shiurim and there's weekly articles and text messages every day. And um, Rabbi Jacobson, you're a living inspiration to thousands of, of you and all around the globe. Thank you so much. To Melbourne Jury, you are the best of the best. Don't ever doubt yourself. Find that even the inner nobility that we have over here. We're proud Melburnians. We're proud Aussies. We're proud Yidin. And we're going to please God keep being proud of who we are. Thank you, Rabbi Moshe. Thank you, everybody. Wishing you all your most amazing, incredible, successful, happy, and healthy year. Gmar Chasimatova. Sending you all. My love and blessings for a most blessed and awesome year. Thank you. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.